This podcast was recorded on April 16th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or change. Welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have another returning guest. We have Jim Bianco, the president of Bianco Research, LLC. Welcome, Jim. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so last time you came on, if memory serves, it's about 14 months ago. And when you came on, I think the discussion was about the synchronization of global growth. How did that turn out, if we revisit that? hours after that podcast, it worked out pretty good, and it turned into the synchronization of global slowdown after that. Right. And so where does that put us today? Because I think the thematic kind of idea going into 18 was that we had the synchronized growth story. Typically, by the time people are talking about that, something turns, which we saw probably due to some of the behavior of the Fed and trying to tighten monetary policy through both tools they were using. Then we got the slowdown. We had the fear back in the fourth quarter of 18. What's it looking like today across your broad measures of economic activity that you look at? Kind of spanning the globe, not good outside of the United States. Europe is still a big struggle. The data that seems to be the biggest worry coming out of Europe right now is the so-called soft data, the survey data. There's a lot of pessimism about what's been going on in Europe as well, too. So there's been a real concern And I still think that things like Brexit is really dragging down that pessimism within Europe as well, too, because it's just this great uncertainty about what's going to happen with a trading partner that's so close to us. Move on to Asia and you look at China. There's no doubt that the Chinese economy has slowed, and it's slowed quite a bit, especially if you look at it over the last several years. I like to say that at the bottom in 08, real growth in China bottomed out at 6%. During the middle of the financial crisis, today that is the expectation going forward, is 6%. The Chinese financial markets are rebounding as there's hope that the stimulus is going to work. We'll see if it works. And there's hope that there's going to be a trade deal with them. At this point, I'm almost willing to say that a trade deal is pretty much priced in off financial markets. I think that the only thing a trade deal could do right now is disappoint because it's been so widely discounted, especially in the big rally that you've had in Chinese stocks. So outside the U.S., the data looks not good. Within the U.S., the data is kind of conflicting depending on where you want to look at it. And what I mean by that is if you look at the economic data, you can point to things that look very good on a sub-4% unemployment rate, a 50-year low in initial claims, And you can say, hey, here's some signs that the economy's doing fine, maybe even pushing full employment. And then you look over at the stock market, knocking on the door at new all-time highs, and you say, see, that confirms that. But then you can look at the disappointment that we've seen in some of the retail sales numbers. You can look at the expectations that we're going to actually have negative growth in earnings. And you could say, well, that doesn't look too good. 
Then gaze your eyes over at the bond market, which is still under 260, nearer the low of the year than the high of the year, and the yield curve, which was inverted up until a week ago. And that seems to confirm that maybe things are a little bit dicey. So the U.S. is more of a mixed bag, where the bull case in Europe is really all about it's bad, but we know it is priced in. And I'm not so sure it all is at this point. The case in the U.S. is a little bit more mixed. How do you guys see it? Yeah, I think that's right. With the European side, it's been negative for so long that it's hard to say that it gets much worse, although we've been saying that for a couple of months, or at least thinking that. And then you get the German data keeps disappointing on the PMI side. The GDP data gets a little bit worse. And it looks like they're really on the precipice, if not in a recession in Germany at this point. Now, is it just kind of the auto sales side of the equation, which we're hearing a lot more people refer to? had a conversation with economists this morning talking about how important the global auto sales really are and what it's signaling to the market. And the short answer is that it's a slowdown. But when it comes into the U.S. market, I think the one thing that's caused us the most concerns is the retail sales, like you mentioned. We've seen some ideas posited about it's related to tax collection. And ultimately, with the government shutdown in January, those early filers of taxes didn't get their refunds uh, like they typically do. Then in general, the withholdings being slightly less this year and it being distributed more across throughout the year versus this lump sum payment, perhaps that is what's driving it. What's your kind of take on that idea about the taxes and the retail sales? Is it people just looking for something to support the case that it's going to rebound? Or do you think that actually the consumer is finally getting to where they're tightening the belt a little bit? Anytime somebody starts bringing up the government shutdown as an excuse, I kind of roll my eyes. We shut down 20% of the government for 30 days, and you would think that this is going to be a milestone in human history that we survived it the way that it's being portrayed as well. I don't think that that is as big a deal. I do think that there has been a pronounced slowdown. I think it was an echo of the fourth quarter financial markets when the stock market almost fell 20%, and it scared the hell out of everybody. And the question now is, will we get an echo on the other side of the near new high that we have in financial markets? Because when you ask most people about the economy, uh, you know, that don't work in our business, they really don't understand the question. That's why I've always liked to say that consumer confidence is the world's most useless indicator because all it tells me is what the stock market did last month. And I can look that up. I don't need a whole survey to tell me what it did last month. And so when January and February, what did the stock market do last month? Not good. But by the time you get to March, April, what did the stock market do last month? was a lot better. So hopefully we'll see some of a rebound in that if that's indeed what's driving it. If I'm wrong on that we don't see a rebound, I'd become very concerned then at that point. I think you should be concerned about the markets to that level. And as we kind of scan the kind of broad sectors of the market, you talked about the rebound we've seen in emerging market equities, specifically China. We look at the S&P, as you said, near all-time highs in price on a total return. It is at a new high as of today. When you look at credit markets on the bond side, investment grade, back to the tights where we were to be in the fourth quarter. In fact, they've actually broke through at about 105 on average today. You've got the high-yield market trading tighter than it did going into the fourth quarter. So all these risk assets are really back to where they were. But you had mentioned earlier in the kickoff, there is one outlier there, and that's the uh, U.S. Treasury market. 
And it's not just treasuries, I think it's global sovereigns in general are about 50 to 60 basis points lower than they were to begin the fourth quarter. What do you make of that? Is it this accommodation from the rates market that's helping lead to some of this risk behavior? Because yields are ultimately lower, right? If you have tighter spreads and lower treasury yields for risk markets. So how do you kind of dissect that versus the conflicting data set you're seeing from the economic perspective? Well, I do think that on one level, that there's a big market signal coming because not only are rates lower, but the curve inverted, and let's just call it flat right now, even though when I say curve, I mean usually the three-month tenure. That's the economist's favorite curve, although there's several other ones, and some of the shorter curves are still inverted. Yields fell through a bull flattener, meaning that long-term rates fell through short-term rates. That's typically a sign when we've seen that in the past that the market is saying the Fed is too tight. We are dropping long-term rates because a combination of slower growth, lower inflation, both, or something else along those lines, leads us to believe that the proper move is for lower rates. Short rates don't go down because the Fed has been making noise that they won't lower them, which is what they've been doing now. You invert the curve, and it's a signal that the Fed is too tight. And... Usually, when you get that signal, it is usually accompanied by the chairman of the Federal Reserve and everybody else coming out and saying, oh, the yield curve doesn't matter, it's an anachronism, it's going to be wrong this time. And, you know, Bernanke famously said that in 2005, pay no attention to that inverted yield curve, it won't amount to anything. And then in 2007, we had a recession, and the rest of it to say is history. So I think really what the market is telling us with the fall in rates and the inability of rates rising is that the Treasury market's opinion is the Fed might be too tight. Now, bring somebody on with an economist title to their job description, and they'll probably disagree with that. But I do think that that's where the market is right now. So the lower yields, I think, is a recognition of where they think the Fed is. I think the higher risk markets, just to square that circle, the stock market pushing all-time highs, crude oil, you know, 75% retracement of its decline, et cetera, is that the Fed backed off from its tight money to hold, that it's just the sugar high that we've given the market that we've seen the story being for the last 10 years or so. you agree with that? I think there is a lot in there. And one thing, you mentioned oil, too. I think that that's one thing that's kind of been a little surprising to me is that if you kind of overlay a chart, and there's some chart crimes that people say you commit by doing that, but if you look at the direction, let's say, of crude oil versus the direction of like the tenure, for instance, there was a very high correlation between those two things throughout most of 18, and even as we had the rate rally here in rates in the first couple of months. But it seems that on, I don't know, roughly the day of the FOMC, oil continued to grind higher and then rates kind of fell a little bit more from that point. I think some of it was the rate move, the obligatory bringing back the to blame the convexity hedgers in the mortgage market. Once again, it looks like that was part of the dynamic there. But as the oil continued to grind higher, and I'm using oil too as thinking about the commodity side of the inflation argument, the break-even spreads went back up, but by rates not really moving, it essentially said that you're going to have lower 
real growth, right? If you take back how you price out the nominal rate there. And so I think that's the one thing that I've seen a bit surprising is that it's been stubborn on the 10s and 30s to push a little bit higher, even though you'd expect something to kind of change the dynamic with risk sentiment, as you mentioned, being more favorable, just being in a rear view looking manner, coupled with the idea that probably you're going to see where energy was a drag on inflation on your basis, it's starting to at least be flat to slightly positive. And so I think to me, that's the one thing that I've kind of struggled reconciling recently is how rates have been stubborn to move. And is it giving us a different signal from those other parts of the risk markets? Do you agree with that? Yeah. And I'd go you one step further. You know, it's across the whole curve and the proper phrase is chart porn. And if you look at a chart, there's a metric you can look at is how many rate hikes or cuts are priced in in the market over the next year, and you overlay that on crude oil. From about 2015, when the Fed started raising rates, until the December 24th low, you were basically looking at the same chart. They moved up and down together. But since then, there's been a massive divergence between those. Crude oil's gone straight up. The number of rate hikes, or now cuts, is actually more now than it was, and even though we're taking them out, than it was in early January. So it's across the entire yield curve that you've seen that divergence with commodity prices, especially crude oil, and the way that yields have been trading. So the bond market is definitely sending a signal that it's seeing the world a little differently. And what I hear from economists is this big argument about whether or not it's right or not. And most of them think it's wrong. It shouldn't be that way, that they're demanding rates go up and they're demanding the yield curve steepen because things are much better. But it's a $20 trillion market, and it's not as enthusiastic as the stock market is right now. Yeah, fair enough. You know, Jim, I wanted to bring it back a little bit, back to the inverted yield curve, particularly on the threes, tens. It seems like Powell may be regretting his presser after each meeting type of commitment that he's put himself on because, I mean, if you take a look at the ticks, it really just seems like the three to ten month inversion started right after he gave his last presser back in March. How much of that is just self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of what he's communicating, how he's communicating, and how much of it can just be attributed to him? Because, I mean, since... December, pretty much, it's just been ping pong, pow, pivot, pow, whatever you want to call it, just doing a 180 degree turn each time. And this time, it just seems like it's really a lot of it can be attributed to him. Yeah, I like that phrase. It's pow, ping pong is really what it is. I think that the Fed downplays, and I think they generally don't realize what happened at the December meeting. During the press conference in December, Powell uttered those famous words, automatic pilot, and he talked about two rate hikes. And in that hour or so that he was talking, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 600 points during that one hour that he was talking. And that was almost 3%, 2.5% that it fell during that period. And I've talked to my Fed friends, and I said, look, that was the worst press conference maybe ever. And they're like, oh, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't a mistake. I was like, okay, you go back to... The Saturday Night Special in 1979 by Paul Volcker. Now I'm really dating myself that I know what that was. And I said, over that last 40-year period, you tell me what was a worse event for the Fed than that December presser. And, of course, they followed that up on January 3rd when Paul came out and said, forget everything I said on December 19th, whole new regime, no more rate hikes. I want to cut you off there. What's great about that January 3rd is – 
who did he have on stage with him when he said that? He had Ben Bernanke and he had Johnny Yellen up there, probably who advised him and said, you have to turn the ship around. Right. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you look at the tape of it, Neil Irwin in the New York Times asked him the first question, and as he asked him the question, Paul reached into his coat pocket and he pulled out a piece of paper and what he read. So it was a prepared remark, and his hands were shaking when he was reading it. He was so nervous about what was going on. You know, I think somebody got to him and said, you better fix this, and you better fix this now. And that was his event. But what I'm trying to get at is that event told the market, we're in charge. We're in charge right now, and that Powell will hold a press conference on May 1st, his next meeting, and that press conference is a series of suggestions, and the market will either bless those suggestions or it will go in a different direction and tell him that he's not quite got the policy that they want. And that seems to be where we're at. It all, I think, really comes back to the December presser, is that he caved. Now, I'm not necessarily saying he was wrong to cave. He was probably wrong to misread the market in having that aggressive a stance. Because if you remember before the December presser, Kevin Warsh and Stan Druckenmiller wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal two days before that, basically imploring the Fed to stop with the balance sheet reductions and to not raise rates. And then the day before that, the one economist that got all of this right was this guy named Donald Trump who tweeted out, stop the 50 Bs the day before the meeting. So my point was, it wasn't like this was a shock. There was a lot of people screaming at them, don't do this. And they didn't listen. And then the market slammed down and it forced them to change. So maybe if they listen a little better, then they won't be caught up in such a surprise. But to the original question, yeah, I think that in some respects, the Paul Ping Pong is really, don't throw out a policy idea at this presser, and then we'll see whether or not the market blesses it, and the market's feeling emboldened after the December event that the Fed threw out a policy, and the market said, uh-uh-uh, we're not doing that, we're going to go in a different direction, and it only took Paul a couple of days, plus a Caribbean vacation in the middle to finally figure out that that was the policy that they should have had. Well, it probably didn't help to have Steve Mnuchin come back on Christmas Eve and say, oh, don't worry, I talked to all the heads of the banking sector and there's no liquidity problem whatsoever. Market opens down like 3% that morning and then people are freaked out going into the holiday. But to continue on the Powell side. By the way, do you know the dirty little secret about why he did that? No, but let's elucidate our listeners here. Yes. Remember that the reason Powell is the chairman of the Federal Reserve is because Mnuchin recommended him to Trump. And when the market was falling in December, Trump was unloading on Mnuchin. It was all his fault. He talked him into Powell and basically yelled at him that you better do something about this falling stock market. And then Mnuchin said something. This is all hearsay rumor. Mnuchin said something along the effects of, well, what can I do about the stock market? And Trump pretty much yelled at him that you're the GD Treasury Secretary and you better do something to stop this. So then he starts with the, I talked to the banks, they got enough liquidity, we're going to hold a meeting of the plunge protection team and we're going to start examining the structure of the market, blah, blah, blah. And it fell out of bed right afterwards because he felt pressured to try and do something on that. Sometimes the truth is said in jest, right? So... (laughs) 
I could see that too. And I haven't heard of the plunge protection committee in a while. I guess it's because the market's going up for the time being. So let's continue on the press conference too, because people focus on December, but you're talking about floating ideas and kind of test them in the water. I think that's really what Yellen did when announcing QT to start with. It's like, okay, let's put it out there and see how it goes. And What's the response mechanism? I think this is part of the whole forward guidance idea. But let's go back to the January press conference in January. And Powell up there saying, you know, well, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at the balance sheet. We're going to come together and have a plan. And during the presser, he probably was asked three or four different times by reporters, what is that plan? Well, we're going to look into it in the next couple of meetings. And so he set the tone for there being some policy adjustment or at least announcement of, which he did at the March meeting. So do you think that's part of the idea where all of a sudden you bring up these ideas, you try to see how it's going to work, and then ultimately just dabble in and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it. I don't know if the market cheered the balance sheet, uh, the cessation of the balance sheet unwind at this point, or if it was just saying, oh my gosh, the Fed knows a bit more than maybe we do about the data set, hence the treasury rally. What do you think about that? And then What do you think that leads to with the floating of an idea in the water when it comes to the meeting in in two weeks' time? Yeah, I do think that the market was more cheered by the idea that the balance sheet reduction was being slowed. There's a real good relationship if you look at the reduction of the balance sheet and you look at the spread on general collateral repo to the IOER. Now, I'm kind of getting in the weeds for a lot of people here. Interest on excess reserves is the rate at which the Fed sets the funds rate. And general collateral repo is priced off of that. And if you look at that spread, it does track very well with the reduction of the balance sheet that it's moved from a discount to a premium. In other words, short-term funding is getting tighter and tighter because the Fed had been reducing the balance sheet more and more. And that, I think, was what was driving the concern about this automatic pilot talk back in December He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it that this thing is squeezing us and that it isn't just this theoretical thing that they talk about in the uh, clubs at Princeton and at Harvard, but you have to start thinking about that this has practical implications. And as the Fed backed off of that, it really started to cheer that. So I do think that the market wanted them to back off on the balance sheet, and they've got that. As long as I went into the weeds on a technical thing, let me bring up another technical problem that the Fed is going to have here as well, too. Without them reducing the balance sheet a lot more, because we now know they're going to stop reducing the balance sheet in September. They said it will be around $3.5 trillion when they start reducing it. And on May 1st, they'll start tapering it. So we'll go from $50 billion a month to $40 billion a month, probably $30 billion every month until September, and then we'll hit zero. And we'll be at $3.5 trillion. The Fed's got a problem here because There is no Fed fund futures market anymore. That's because every bank is over-reserved because we've got this gigantic balance sheet. The only people that traffic in this are some of the GSEs, the government-sponsored enterprises, and some foreign banks. It's a market that trades maybe eight or ten trades a day. And then they've got this IOER that they try to set as their rate. And in the last couple of weeks, the effective funds rate has actually broken above IOER. It's been trading a little bit above it, which wasn't supposed to happen in the first place. So they're going to have to start rethinking their whole policy from day one and start with what interest rate do we target? Because this funds rate thing doesn't exist. We've always known it didn't exist, so we invented this IOER to try and make people think it exists. 
on the hope that someday when we reduce the balance sheet, we will go back to a pre-2008 period when we actually had a funds rate. We're never going back there now. So I think that there's a lot that the Fed's got on its plate, kind of big picture, and one of them is what is the basic tool of policy right now? Because you're moving this IOER rate, and when you started this thing, moving the IOER rate a year and a half ago or two years, or actually three years ago, the funds rate used to trade 15 basis points below it. Now it trades one to three basis points above it. And it, there's no reason that it should stop there. So my point is, if I bored the hell out of some of the listeners here by getting into the weeds, is that the Fed's going to have to start rethinking kind of existentially, what is our policy tool? How do we move that policy tool? And what does it affect? The days of the moving the funds rate up and down, that market doesn't exist anymore. And so they've got a lot to think about because their hope, again, was, well, we'll run the balance sheet way down, and then the funds rate market will restart itself. Well, they're not doing that anymore. So they've got to start thinking about this. Yeah, we'll make sure we put a disclosure on this at the beginning if you're driving a vehicle or operating heavy machinery to be careful before you go on some answers there. We obviously find it very interesting, though. So you're talking about Fed policy tools, and there's been a couple of new ideas out there that have been thrown around over the last couple of months. One is adopting quantitative easing at all points throughout the cycle. It's not just this unprecedented tool now, which is typically when anything gets introduced, it's never just a one-off. There's also the idea of now, if there's a 2% inflation target, that if we undershoot it for a period of time, we should try to overshoot it. Therefore, we get this cumulative 2% stealing of your wealth every single year. Just you get to benefit when it's only one and a half and the likes. But then there's also the idea that perhaps maybe we're not even measuring employment right and the labor market right. And maybe this isn't even full employment because I think the reason that they're coming up with this is that because the Phillips curve isn't existing. What do you think about these three ideas and do they belong here? Or is this just a way of the Fed saying that, hey, we're going to try anything it takes to get our policies to instill confidence in the market of our policies? When you bring up that, I want to take that last step that you talked about with the Phillips curve. Okay, let's start there. In 1977, the Congress passed the Federal Reserve Reform Act, and that was when they instituted the dual mandate. The dual mandate is that, in simply put, you must try and keep employment as high as possible and inflation as low as possible. And then, technically, the Dodd-Frank threw in a third kind of quasi-mandate of financial stability. That's almost secondary to this argument about this dual mandate. In order for the Fed to operate as a dual-mandate Fed, and they're one of the only central banks that has this, they need a unified theory so that when they move interest rates or they change policy, it affects both sides of the mandate at the same time. That's the Phillips curve. And that is the idea that growth can lead to inflation and inflation can lead to unemployment. So when we lower interest rates, we're working both sides of the mandate at the same time positively. When we raise interest rates, we're actually trying to work both sides of the mandate positively as well, too, because in their opinion, inflation is rising. But you need that relationship between growth and inflation via the Phillips curve. Now, as you pointed out, there's a lot of people that have argued, going all the way back to Milton Friedman in the late 1960s and Edmund Phelps, that it doesn't work. The Phillips curve doesn't work that way. The problem for the Fed is if we all came out and we all agreed 
Phillips curve doesn't work, that the relationship between employment and inflation is a zero correlation or very loose, they can't conduct policy. Because the minute they move an interest rate, they have to admit it will help one side of the mandate but hurt the other side of the mandate. So they always start with this conclusion that there's this Phillips curve relationship that seems to work. And to the Fed's credit, they are now engaged in a series of meetings called Fed Listens, and they're going around the country. The last one was 10 days ago in the Minneapolis Fed. And they have certain economists and business people on the DS talking about inflation and employment and how these things work in their mind. And in the audience, at least at the uh, Minneapolis Fed 10 days ago, is people like Rich Clarida and other Federal Reserve officials. Neil Karskari was in the audience as well, too, asking them questions as opposed to them being on the DS. And so they're trying to understand and what they're hearing from them is this Phillips curve thing doesn't work. And this is a problem if the Fed were to embrace it. But when Charlie Evans comes out and says, because you're right, let's go above 2%, so we average 2% over a long period of time, one of the big proponents of the current measure of the Phillips curve, who wrote the seminal paper on the modern Phillips curve, is Rich Clarida, who's the vice chairman of the Fed. They're in a very interesting position right now because they're holding meetings and being told, you know that relationship that you base policy on so that it works for both sides of the mandate? It doesn't exist. But they then say, and Yellen was asked this in 2017 when she famously said, yeah, why inflation isn't going up is a mystery, but we're still going to keep raising rates. Well, why, Janet? If you just admitted that your theories don't work, why are you keep raising rates? That's the problem that the Fed is unfolding with right now, which is why I think somebody like Moore or Kane coming into the uh, Fed, I personally think the reason they didn't want those guys, other than it's a private club and they don't like outsiders in the club, that's a big reason, was they might be up close to backing off a little bit on their hawkish stance and they didn't want to make it look like they were caving to Trump because Moore and Kane come onto the Fed and then they back off. They want to make it look more like it was an independent decision on their part. So there's a lot going on there when it comes to this. And the Fed gets it. I mean, they're holding meetings. And their big last powwow on this is going to be June 4th, 5th in Chicago. It'll be a two-day conference. And it'll actually be streamed live because it's going to be that important. But I think what will happen is everybody will tell the Fed that the Phillips curve doesn't work, go back to the drawing board, and they'll say, thank you very much. That was very insightful. And they'll just continue to do exactly what they have been doing for the last 40 years. Have you thought much about this or heard about this this Fed Listens conference at all? Because it's surprising that very few people actually have. I actually have not heard of it, and I just wrote it down, <laughs> thinking that's going to be something to pay attention to. But I think that the title's interesting, Fed Listens. It's almost like you're admitting defeat, right? Because usually it's Fed Speak, right? We always talk about Fed Speak. Who's heard of Fed Listens, you know? Right. And when was the last time that you've heard of a conference where everybody on the DS speaking is not from the Fed and the audience 
is the Fed <laughs> right. asking them the question. I would think that would be the other way around, bro. It would just be completely something different. So I've always found it curious, too, because we have conversations with the Fed just as being a big participant. It's typically the New York, and they want to know what we're seeing in markets and stuff. And obviously, they don't tell us anything. But I do recall the conversation post-December Fed meeting, because they're typically quarterly. And they were amazed on our take on the bond market, that it's a function of liquidity, and it's the balance sheet unwind. And the idea that they kept trying to jam back at us was that, but we've told you what the policy is going to be. How can you be surprised by it? We're saying we're surprised by your lack of a reaction function to it or the automatic pilot idea that you have no reaction to it. It's damn the torpedoes instead. And so just hearing this from you for the first time, this Fed listens, maybe it's a good policy. The idea that they actually want to know what market participants are thinking. And it's not a function of talking one's book. It's trying to say, these are the things we're observing in the market. And maybe you are not the omnipotent being that can just control everything. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's what they're getting. And I think they're genuinely listening. But, you know, I wonder if it's going to lead to the really hard questions. And you're right. I got the same things. I'm in Chicago. I talked to the Chicago Fed and they asked me exactly the same questions after December. And the same thing came up with, we told you we were going to do this. And they talked about the reaction function. And I said, you know, everybody in financial markets knows the old line that it doesn't matter till it matters. And that seemed to be what happened with your balance sheets, is that it didn't matter till it matters. You cannot make the announcement that, hey, someday we're going to reduce the balance sheet and we're going to take it down by a lot. Okay, I waited 12 minutes. The markets haven't crashed. I guess they're okay with it. That's right. Don't fall into that trap to think that that's a good idea because the market will pay attention to it when it's ready to pay attention to it. The response to me asking the questions back is like, what do you mean? There's obviously not a problem. Rates are lower. And I'm like okay, let's cherry pick the start and end dates here uh, because from your policy, it's not. The fact that it's rallied in the last month uh, doesn't really give me a lot of confidence that the market believes you. Right, exactly. And that can take it back to our earlier conversation about the bond market pricing in something different than the stock market is as well too. So, yeah, I mean, I'll give this Fed a lot of credit that they are at least listening. Now, the reason I'm being hesitant is I'm sensing they're not going to get the answer that they want, go back to the drawing board and start thinking up things differently. They might do like Janet did in 2017, just announce that it's all very interesting and I've learned a lot, and then we'll just continue right on the way we've always done stuff without changing anything. Or you create a new measure. What did they create back then? It was like the underlying inflation gauge or something. Hey, this measure says inflation's coming, so here's a data set that we're going to look at today. Or the labor market conditions index. That didn't last very long, did it? In 2014, she went to Jackson Hole and gave her whole speech about, hey, we got this new labor market conditions index. What a great indicator. And it tells us exactly that we've got the right policy. By 2017, when it was telling them that they should not be raising rates anymore and maybe consider cutting, you know what the Fed's response to that was? We discontinued the series is what their answer was. I remember inducing that into our monthly meetings. You know, hey, here's this new indicator. The Fed has created it. So it's like, okay, what's it telling us? Yeah, things are good. All of a sudden, then when it started giving conflicting signals, people are like, wait, who created this signal? And I'm like, well, this is the Fed's measure. Of course, this is how they're going to dictate policy. We're going to negative rates all of a sudden. And then, like you said, it, it got discontinued. And so it never got a lot of buy-in internally, I'd say, here. But I think that poses a great question. So 
with all this divisiveness in the data set and conflicting signals we're getting, where does this put you in terms of the next Fed move? Is it complacency for a while? Is it that we keep the balance sheet where it is and then everything's going to be rosy? I can never pronounce the former Minnesota Fed's governor's name. Karchlokota. I always need someone to say it and I can repeat it back. Karchlokota. He's saying that we need to cut rates now because we need to get ahead of the next recession. What's your stance on thinking about where the Fed is in terms of their policy? And what do you think, given the economic data you're seeing, is the right way to proceed? First of all, I think the rate hike cycle is over. I think it ended in December. And I think now that the argument is basically, when will the Fed cut rates next? I am in the camp of Karchlokota. And I am in the camp of Tim Dewey, University of Oregon professor, who follows the Fed. Tim Dewey puts out good material, I think. Yeah, he does. He does. If I could paraphrase what he said a couple of weeks ago was, look, the market wants you to cut rates. Cut rates. What's the big deal? Just give them a rate cut. You know, you can always take it back later. But the problem is, while I'm in that camp that they should be cutting rates, largely because I don't think that they've got the things right with the Phillips curve. The inflation rate's low. I think the economy's going to continue to not be as robust as they think. The problem with the Fed is they view the market signaling of a rate cut as being so momentous. Oh, my God, we cut rates. This is a powerful signal, and this is a technical term for you, that everything's going to hit the fan so that we can't do a rate cut until it's way too late. And that maybe what they should do, you know, Dewey used to say, too, look, a rate hike cycle should be four up, one down, two up, one down, three up, two down, and demystify the idea that you went the other way. But not this Fed, not in 2019. If you raise rates, it is a big banging of the drum that something seminal happened, the first rate hike. And the first rate cut is the same thing. So I fear that what this Fed will do is they will wait and wait and wait for that first rate cut, and it will be way too late when it happens. You know, you said on January 4th when Janet Yellen was on the Diaz with Jay Powell, she said that the reason we have recessions is economies don't die of old age, that the Fed raises rates and causes recessions because they're trying to slow things down before inflation gets out of control. And then Ben Bernanke chimed in two minutes later and said, I like to say that the reason you have recessions is the economy gets murdered. This is how the Fed's going to murder the economy. It's going to slow. They're going to know that they should cut rates, but they won't. The curve will stay inverted because they're afraid that they're sending a signal that they don't want to send that things are going bad, and they'll wait way too long, and we'll go from there. So if I was on the Fed, I'd be leaning towards the rate hike cycle's over. You should be cutting rates sooner. But I fear what's going to happen is they're going to cut rates way too late. And my other fear, which I put as a lower probability, is they might raise rates one more time, and that will be just another mistake as well, too. Well, Jim, what about this? So we're talking about floating policy ideas in two weeks' time. I think it's May 1st, right? It's the beginning of FMC. So let's say that the idea is floated that Powell's listening to us today. He's a big follower of ours, right? Both your and my work, right? And so he's going to come out and say, we've really been thinking about this, and we think we're done for the cycle for now. We think maybe in the next few months, maybe it is warranted to have a right cut to try to help kind of stimulate again. It's probably only going to be one or so, 
but we're adaptive. We're going to be fluid. We're going to figure out how the market responds to these things, how the economic data responds, and we're going to go from there. And you try to set that expectation that it's not just this unidirectional path until you have this 180-degree turn. I agree. I think that if they were to set that idea, like I said, four up, one down, three up, one down, that's what we would refer to as a rate hike cycle. If they were to set that kind of path, it would be so much more beneficial for the Fed because you could come out in a situation like in early January. Look, the market's freaking out. They want us to cut rates. Okay, here's one. Here's one. Let's see what happens. If you don't like it, we'll take it back. But ultimately, we'll see what path we're going to go on. I think it would make policy a lot more fluid and a lot more, for lack of a better word, correct. Look, the market's demanding a rate hike. All right, give it to it. What's just one? We've raised rates eight times. We'll take back one. All right, what's another rate cut? What's the second one? Give it that, too. That's how you wind up changing policy, is that by the time you did the third or fourth one, you go, oh, I guess we're going the other way now with policy, to be more responsive to the market. Because right now, I do think that this binary, we're either in a rate hike cycle or a rate cutting cycle kind of mentality does lead to them being way too late. But it's also self-reinforcing at some point, because if you have this self-reinforcing idea, you're saying that, oh, by the time we cut, that's too late, or, oh, the Fed is in a hiking cycle, therefore, I don't want to go out there and lend. I know there's going to be problems going forward. It almost is this reflexivity that people talk about in financial markets. Right, exactly. Well, lastly, you'd mentioned the Kane and the Moore things, too, and so it made me think we're talking about the direction of heights and all I could think about was Mr. Kane's 999 plan when he was a presidential hopeful. Do you think he could bring something? He was a former... He was the chairman of the Kansas City Fed. Chairman, not the governor, but he's a chairman back there. Do you think he could bring some insights into there from being there for a while and then ultimately going into business? Yes, but let me just preface this with, first of all, as we speak today, there was a story on this afternoon that Larry Kudlow talked to some reporters at Politico and announced that they are still interviewing candidates for the Fed governor position, and then asked if Herman Cain is still their candidate. Larry's comment was, well, it's up to him to withdraw his name, but for now he's still part of the process. So there's that ringing endorsement for Mr. Cain right there. And the math on it is very simple, just why that is. There's 47 Democrats in the Senate, and no matter who Trump appoints, there's 47 no's. You can't lose four Republicans. And four Republicans have already come out against Kane. So there's 51 no's. He can't make it through unless he could change one of those Republicans' mind, which is very unlikely. And a lot of people think that more might be in the same position. Now that I've said that it might not be either one of them or both of them, I do think, though, that what Trump is attempting to do, I'm all for and I'm all for this idea of breaking the Ph.D. standard at the Fed, returning the governor position back to what it was originally supposed to be, and that is a policy maker. Andrew Metrick, he's a Yale University professor who's an expert on the Fed, and two weeks ago, when criticizing Moore, I think he let the truth flip out. He said the job of a Fed governor is to take what the staff tells them and synthesize it into a data-dependent outlook. In other words, the job of a Fed governor is the staff will hand you your talking points and you will read them like you mean it, is basically, so that the Fed governors, 
since 2005, here's a fun statistic for you. The last Fed governor to dissent in a meeting was Mark Olson in 2005. That in the last 15 years, Fed governors have voted with the Fed chairman 649 to 1. All the dissents come from the bank presidents. That position is no longer a policymaker. It's like the domestic Nobel for academic economists or something. It's a reward that we give somebody for a, a nice career. If Trump wants to break that cycle and he wants to bring in somebody who's actually going to say, I am a policymaker, you will give me input, but the decision is mine on what to do, not that I will read your talking points at the meeting. And that's what Kane and Moore were attempting to bring to the Fed. I'm all for it. I'm all for it right now. I think it will only make the Fed a better organization. It will break the group think of the Fed and the insular thinking that they have. And in fairness to the Fed, with like Fed listens and stuff, they're already starting to break it. It's a lot better than it was, say, when Greenspan was the chairman. It was at its worst. And then Bernanke was pretty bad, too. Yellen helped to loosen it up, and Paul seems to be loosening it up a little bit more. So I'm all for this idea that PhDs need not apply. Let's just bring regular people. And yeah, you're a policymaker. They'll give you some reports to read and assessments to read. But at the end of the day, it's your decision on what to do. Not at the end of the day, your job. And I've also heard this about the Fed governors. They're supposed to vote with the chairman, but they can meet with the chairman beforehand and go over their concerns. That's what an employee does. And an employee goes to the boss and says, hey, boss, I have these worries and concerns, and would you hear me out? And the boss hears you out, and then the boss makes a decision, and you move forward. Fed governors are not the employee of the chairman. And if we were to break out of that, I think it would be a great thing. Well, I think that's a good point to hint at that today. We've given some recommendations to the Fed on how to conduct policy, how to think about things, and perhaps indeed with this new moniker, this new title of their tour, the Fed listens, maybe we're going to have better policy and more transparency going forward. You can only hope so. While I did express some skepticism about it, look, all the props in the world that at least they're doing it to start with. This would have been unthinkable in the Bernanke or the Greenspan era to actually do something like this. Hey, well, maybe we're indeed moving forward. So with that, before we let you leave, Jim, Sam would like to uh, play his favorite part of the show real quick. He's going to give you the rules once again, and let's see if we can have another stimulative one-word answer discussion here. Okay. And Jim, you are a veteran at this. As you know, it's called Sherman Says. I will give a term, and hopefully that will prompt a response from you. And I'll alternate between you and Sherman. Okay. I try to keep it the one word as best I can. <laughs> so the first one, Mr. Sherman, trade war or trade peace? You're just setting me up there because they're both two words. You can pick the latter part then. Peace. War or peace? Always take peace. Peace. All right. And to you, Jim, I-O-E-R. On its way out. It's not one word. <laughs> Go on. Leaving. That'll be the word I'll use. Back to Sherman with sell in May. That's a question, actually. Sell in May? Today. Phillips Curve. Dead. Tax returns. Painful. Investor sentiment. Woo. <laughs> Is that your answer? Woo? <laughs> yeah. Bond market too bearish. I got to preface it with the bond market. FAA. Shut down Boeing. I'm still upset with the response mechanism from Boeing. But anyway. MMT. It's going to happen. 
GOT, Game of Thrones. As believable as MMT. Blackhawks. Bad. So, Jim, with that, I got to come back on one more question here, too. If we're going to do MMT, why do I have to pay taxes? I listen to your podcast and I've heard you guys talk about MMT in the past. And I just think that the shutdown argument for MMT, oh, you know, it's Venezuela, it's the Weimar Republic, blah, blah, blah. And the shutdown argument is the Fed printed $4 trillion to buy bonds, didn't create inflation. Why don't we print $4 trillion to pay for UBI? That's going to be a very powerful argument to make, especially if you have a President Sanders or something along those lines. Stephanie Kelton is already his senior economic advisor. Yep, and I've read the paper. I think it's a fair point. Just because we don't agree with it doesn't mean that we don't think it can happen. And you made the perfect thing there. If we save corporate America and made people very wealthy with QE and the Fed bought it, why doesn't the Fed buy it for Main Street and the populace in general? So Yeah, and I really think that they're over there. Rick Reeder at BlackRock last week was saying that the ECB should look at possibly buying equities on the next go-around, and he gave a bunch of good economic and financial arguments. And when I was asked about it, I said, oh, so there's not enough yellow vest protesters in Paris. You want more of them is what you want, because that's all that's going to be viewed as. And what I'm also afraid with MMT is they're going to start really small, and then a year later they'll say, see, it worked. There's no inflation. There's no problem. We'll do a little bit more. We'll do a little bit more. And then five years down the road, it'll be out of control. But that's exactly how Janet started the balance sheet one. Well, we're doing it. Yep. Right? And by the time you looked at the cumulative flows, they barely unwound anything because the first like five or six weeks due to just some timing, they end up having to reinvest more. Right. And the, the rates went up and then the prepay speeds actually increased on their mortgages. And nothing came down. And then MMT will be the same thing. It won't matter till it does. And when it does, it's too late. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back soon in a couple weeks with a new guest. And again, you can catch us at our website, iTunes, SoundCloud, some other ones that I'm not aware of. So anyway, thanks again for listening. And Jim, thanks again for all your time today. Thank you. Take care. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.